Welcome to the 383rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Justin Mann, author of Black Insecurity at the End of the World. As a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself. As a future guest, we are booking COVID calls episodes now all the way through the end of the year, but we do have slots open early in the new year, so please do get in touch if you'd like to make a suggestion or if you would like to discuss new research. As of today, November 24th, 2021, there are 5,170,446 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Texas Man's Obituary Blames Trump, Governor Abbott for COVID 19 Death. Texas Man's Obituary Blames Trump and Governor Abbott for COVID 19 Death. This was written by Benjamin Fearnow, August 4th, 2020, and appeared in Newsweek. An obituary penned by the family of a Texas man in 2020 who died in late July of that year from complications tied to coronavirus took direct aim at selfish people refusing to wear masks and President Donald Trump for refusing to take this pandemic seriously. David W. Nagy of Jefferson, Texas died at age 79 in July of 2020, leaving behind his inconsolable wife, Stacy, five children and several grandchildren. According to his obituary published in the local Jefferson Jumplecute newspaper, Obituary described how Neji suffered greatly from the ravages of the COVID-19 virus before quickly changing tone and blaming others for his death. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott, Trump, and other ignorant people, quote-unquote, were listed as partially responsible for not treating the coronavirus pandemic with seriousness. Obituary ridiculed so-called anti-maskers for refusing to wear protective facial coverings during the pandemic, which killed innocent people, including Neji. Family members believe David's death was needless, his wife Stacy Nagy wrote in the July 30th obituary, which has since been shared in thousands of screenshots on social media. They blame his death on Trump, Abbott, and all the politicians who did not take this pandemic seriously and were more concerned with their popularity and votes than lives. Also to blame, according to the obituary, and I'm quoting here, are the many ignorant, self-centered, and selfish people who refuse to follow the advice of the medical professionals, believing their right not to wear a mask was more important than killing innocent people. The obituary continued, David did everything he was supposed to do, but you did not. Shame on all of you, and may karma find you all. Newsweek reached out to members of the family through Facebook and also to Governor Abbott's office for reactions, but did not hear back any. Neji died in the ICU at Christus Good Shepherd Hospital in Longview, Texas, on July 22nd. According to his family, he was born 
November 7, 1940, in Salt Lake City, Utah, before spending most of his life in California and finally retiring to North Texas. I was angry at the situation and the way people are talking and treating the pandemic, the way people act like this is nothing. Stacy, his wife, age 72, said in an interview with the Washington Post, it's because of their carelessness and because of our politicians not getting control of this thing. That's why so many people are dying. I was just very, very angry. That's why I wrote it, and I meant everything I said in it. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce Justin Mann. Justin L. Mann is an assistant professor of English and African American Studies at Northwestern University. He has research and teaching interests in African American literature, black feminist theory, black speculative fiction, and security policy. His current book project, Breaking the World, Black Insecurity After the New World Order, argues that black speculative fictions are a critical but overlooked archive for understanding America's security ambitions since the Reagan administration. Bringing works by Octavia E. Butler, Walter Mosley, Colson Whitehead, and N.K. Jemison, among others, into conversation with white papers, Breaking the World argues that black speculation rejects the false promises of securitization by figuring insecurity as a central mode for making political and social worlds. In his recent article, which we'll discuss today, Black Insecurity at the End of the World, published in October by Milas, Dr. Mann examines the racialization of disease in Colson Whitehead's zombie novel, Zone One. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Dr. Mann's work has also appeared in the journals Feminist Theory, Surveillance in Society, Feminist Studies, and in Avidly.com. Justin Mann, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, let's start. Uh, just by finding out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. Sure. I'm I'm here in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and the pandemic situation, I think, is really confusing. Um, I am attached to Northwestern University. I live on the north side of Chicago. And it seems like things um, are returning to normal. Um, we I just went to a movie today. I got a booster shot yesterday. <laughs> um, you know, students are going to classes, people are moving about their lives. Um, so I think that the, the, it seems like the, we're, we're, we're getting over the post-relief surge that happened with Delta variant. Um, but I know that there are hotspots all over the place and, um, you know, who knows what will happen if there's another mutation or if people don't vaccinate or do, do what they're supposed to do, you know. How is the university handling things at this juncture? I have to say, you know, the university really, from the beginning, I think did the right, took the right steps, even if it maybe took them half a breath longer than some of us wanted them to. They canceled classes for spring quarter, as most places did. They did that pretty quickly. Um, you know, we did a full remote program all of last year. And then this year, as we did a return to campus, they mandated vaccination for all students facilitated vaccination for international students who were initially concerned that they would be barred from campus. Um, we have a fairly high vaccination rate and a pretty low, um, like lower than 1%, according to the university data transmission rate. So I think they've done pretty well um, in terms of keeping the, the sense of safety. Um, 
as we'll talk about, I'm sure in a little bit, I think the thing that I have some questions about our communications policy and how they, um, what they're doing to build consensus around safer practices and, um, you know, not, well, yes, that's how they're planning to build consensus, especially among students who are, are kind of tired of <laughs> being socially isolated, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting you described it as a confusing time. And it, I think it, it that functions at many different different levels. I was just thinking about the um, the booster shots. Now I'm in South Korea, so we're not. They're still working on vaccinating the population. They're not yeah. at that stage of the booster shots. But just following from here, it seems like the public health messaging around the boosters got caught up, as it should in the science, which is you know um, incomplete at various stages. And then CDC made its recommendations, but. Um, I worry about that, particularly, you know, with populations that uh, maybe were vaccine hesitant, but went ahead and got vaccinated. Uh, yeah. I'm not talking about full on anti-vaccination, but people who went along with it, but had some right. questions. And I worry about that. Yeah, I think the, you know, the way that this has been such a confusing moment, such a disorienting moment, because we had bad leadership at the beginning, as you know, the the authors of that Obit suggested. I, I think, the language is rightfully strong, um, but the science is emerging in the minute, right? And and we we have this real fight over whether or not science is right or science is wrong, as opposed to science being a, a set of relational and evolving notions and ideas, right? So like, it is a it is a novel. This was a novel virus, right? Then yeah. the virus emerged in a specific moment and it required, we had the technology to develop a vaccine, a vaccine for that virus, but we needed to study that virus. We needed to study the effectiveness of that vaccine. And so how do you convince people who don't know anything about microbiology, vaccination, MRNA processes, live culture, like how do you convince them that this thing that they say they want is also safe, mm. especially when it's so much easier to believe that it has a microchip in it or it has, right. you know, which is totally false. Um, and the precisely the people you're talking about are, I think, the people who are most worthy of concern, right? People who are not resistant, but unsure or unknowledgeable. Um, I don't watch TV. I don't, I don't watch like live television. I watch a lot of streaming stuff, but I haven't seen on streaming services enough PSAs about what vaccination means and how to mitigate the risks of, of potential side effects, small though they are, and how safe, you know, we saw a lot of stories about Delta and breakthrough. Like those were, I think the two big keywords yep. from the fall. Where were the stories about 90 over an overrepresentation of success? You know, that like it, it, the vaccine is so safe and so effective that it is doing better than predicted at trials and that the booster was able to come out as quickly as possible. Um, given the, the sort of constraints of, um, you know, scientific ethics. And so, to me, it's this is all a matter of of narrative and all a matter of like how the ideas about this disease and its treatments are related and transmitted around corners of the internet or media markets or whatever. Uh, your attention to to language here is really important and refreshing, and even the way you you key on that word novel, which has somehow been brushed aside at this point. But this is a a new coronavirus. I mean, a, like, and so many, and of course, it doesn't make the world it finds its way into the world that exists 
but that process of scientific discovery, uh, which I guess in most cases is hidden behind the walls of the lab and not interesting to the pages of major newspapers and media organizations. This is the one time in my lifetime, except for maybe in, in the space program, in which sort of cutting edge science is literally being covered as breaking news mm -hmm. daily. Yeah. And that's slipped off the front page now. And as you say, so I think that's also part of the part of the confusion of this is the temporality and the timing. What's new? What's old? What should we be used to and what not? Yeah. What should we not be used to? And even you're keying on the word breakthrough. Yeah. I, and like that. But, you know, the miracle, the, the miracles, because it's complicated. Right. And I there's um, a, 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 fem, a black feminist theorist, Patricia Williams, who writes in her book, The Alchemy of Race and Rights, that that life is complicated as a matter of great importance, right? And these are, this is, it is complicated. It is increasingly more complicated um, because we have such a uh, detachment from science and technology. I don't know all the science, you, you know, myself. Um, we have had decades of the undermining of science or the privatization of science. And so it's easy to suggest that a scientific inquiry has a political bent. Um, and of course it does, right? Like the CDC is a political, as much as it wants to pretend it's not, it is a political body and it has a politics in mind. Its politics is preventing disease, <laughs> right? Which I think most people can get behind as a mission, but it's political. And so, yeah, break, like what is a breakthrough, you know, the statistical knowledge you need to understand that, yeah, if you are vaccinated, but spend four or five hours indoors with 100 or 200 or 300 other people, the statistical likelihood of your vaccine failing increases exponentially, right? Not even linearly. So the story is about breakthrough. The story is about failure. It's about the, the, the firewall collapsing and not instead about like all the people who didn't get coronavirus, <laughs> like who it didn't transmit to, or um, what, how we can rethink, you know, relations and pub, pub, like being in public so that it's not like so that we're also not engaging and this is not to to be to suggest that people deserve to get the coronavirus because of things that they were doing but that we, the the to not have an alternative modality of, of being to not be able to be differently in the world is is a bit of a a, a problem when that's what the moment is asking for right it's asking us to be somewhat be some other way just a quick reminder to folks, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Justin Mann today. And Justin, um, I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing a, a personal memory from, from this time, kind of the impossible assignment to a certain degree to parse one. But would you have one you might be willing to share? I have a really striking one since we're talking about vaccines. So I remember two, I'll, I'll share two moments that are related. The first was this, I was on a group thread and was talking to most, it was a group thread of academics and the clamor for the vaccine in that early March period, this was probably March, uh, not, would it have been March? Yeah, like a full year later, right? So March, uh, maybe late February of 2021 was really, I, I remember sort of leaving my body where I was like, wait, do we need to get this? How do I get it? What do I do to get it? What happens if someone else needs it more? Like, do I, am I actually like all of the sort of um, super ego processes that you go through, right? When in that, that went through in that moment um, and other people really this sense of like FOMO or of, um, 
of loss because other people were able to find appointments and had done not bad things, but had, were just like willing to drive two and a half hours to get a vaccine. And I wasn't willing to do that. And so that like sense of anxiety that that doubled over, like, will I get this potentially deadly virus? But now how do I get the vaccine? And what are the politics implicit in my desire to get it and my seeking it? And that led to, um, I because of how Illinois opened up um, vaccination, I was, I got an appointment at the United Center. And I remember thinking when I got this appointment that it would be in the United Center. And then driving into the United Center, they have this like very, you know, this like system that I'm sure they have for, 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 for concerts or basketball games, right? Where like you navigate this downtown area. And then I pulled into the parking lot and saw all of these makeshift white tents and was moved through this process of um, like going from line A to line B to line C to get the vaccine to the waiting area to my car in what felt like a refugee camp. And that was a moment of like, whoa, <laughs> you know, what, what is happening that we, the world has shifted so starkly for me that this thing that I write and think about, right, this sort of security processes that happen abroad in places like the Caribbean or the Middle East or North Africa and West Africa, right? That like that's here and that the we don't have a healthcare infrastructure that can effectively vaccinate the population of Chicago. We need to bring in the National Guard, erect these tents that are made out of PVC pipe and, you know, commission now active duty military personnel to administer healthcare. And it was... The, the, the thing that sort of floored me was like, this is a thing that I've been thinking about as, an, as a scholar, but when you sort of encounter it in, in real time, it was like confirming a lot of the things that I thought, of course, but also was like, um, it made me scared. You know, it made me feel really vulnerable that we like what, you know, there is no safety net. There is, there, or there is for me, but for so many people there, there isn't because of how we've, um, how we've destroyed healthcare as a, a sort of concept and made it an industry. And we've, you know, we've routed public services such that we only have the military that can come in and do this. Um, and the experience of being in line with people, it felt like something out of a disaster movie. It felt like what you see in Contagion or in I Am Legend where people are trying to leave, right? These like this sort of huddled masses when you're being told to be socially distant, right? It was just, it was like such an, ex an estranging experience. Um, I don't think I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget it. Well, thank you for sharing both of those. And um, to that second one, I guess I hadn't really heard anybody describe it quite that way. And I think it's really powerful that that's what the security, that's what the safety net is, I guess. It, it, to a certain extent. I mean, it, it, you know, when you put it that way, in, in that sense, <clears throat> the safety net is literally, uh, it, it's militarized, yeah. it's mass scale, it's routinized, it, and it looks very, feels very much like, um, as you said, the kind of processes you study that in, in places where the state has totally failed, this is how people are processed and managed. And it also feels sort of quasi carceral. And I don't want anybody who's in healthcare to hear me to hear that the wrong way. But 
that to me also, you know, you look at some of those images of the processing and people kind of walking through yeah. and marching through and all of the masks. And I think some of it is just the disorientation of the kinds of PPE and things people have to wear. But, For sure, you yeah. know, that, that demarcation between, which usually is downplayed in the clinical setting, that demarcation between the physician and the healthcare professionals and, you know, the, the civilians, the people who are coming through, uh, that's, that breaks down in that kind of a setting. And as you say, it becomes very cinematic. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think carcerality is such an important like metaphor for thinking through um, what that space became. Also, um, yeah, that, that the this was for, for me, it was the first kind of experience in public, right? Where like I was with a bunch of people that I didn't know. And it was a really early encounter with the what emerged later in the summer, which was like, why are you not wearing a mask? Why are you not? Are you a dangerous person? Do you like, so it actually changed my sort of the, like my orientation to other people. Um, and this was an early indication of that. Yeah. The, the way that like the peep, what is PPE for? How is it being used? Again, thinking with like where, where we started that people don't understand how it's being transmitted. Right. So like people are aggressively, you know, cleaning surfaces and doing all kinds of things that at this point we know really don't help, but create a sense of, of that they're part of like hygiene theater or security theater, um, you know, to think with Derek Thompson and um, Simone Brown's writing on those ideas. And yeah, it was just, it was, it was unlike anything else. It, it felt like an occupation, you know, it felt like this thing. And I think, I guess, you know, what's really important to me is that it didn't have to be like that, right? We could have had, we could have such a robust healthcare infrastructure in this in this country and we could have a robust infrastructure infrastructure in this country too but that you know that we don't have a strong and I, this sounds so conservative i don't i can't believe i would say but we don't have a strong civil service right we don't have a strong sure. um that the only way to pay the government is willing to pay people is to is to put on a uniform and fight in the military and so that means that all of emergency all of our emergency planning all of all of our disaster preparedness is routed through through security is through Homeland Security and the Department of Defense, as opposed to the Department of Health and Human Services, the CDC, the FDA, all you know, the, the actual agencies that 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 might have a better way or a different way of thinking about what a human is, you know, how what's the cost of, of of administering care? How do you administer care beyond simply like jabbing someone in the arm with a needle and keeping them moving, right? Like how do you convince people to even get the vaccine? That's not a job for the military. That's a job for doctors. I, I want to come back also to your ambivalence in that earlier moment of the vaccine being available. Uh, and I feel like, again, I mean, I'm taking the media to task a little bit today, and, and uh, but <laughs> that's okay. Uh, they can take it. The, um, that sort of, there was a moment there, maybe in the United States, it was, it was March of 2021, when there was a lot of space to talk about, not about are you vax, are you vax or anti-vax, and and it was this kind of ambiguities and mixed feelings that people, you know, some people. I did a whole episode about people who who did vaccination road trips, and I did an episode in which people described just as you and I were just discussing the the uncanny experience of football stadiums being turned into mass vaccination centers or closed malls and various things. 
you know, and some of those stories, um, because of the nature of the community and where they were happening, they were almost heartwarming or they were community building. There was an opportunity for solidarity in some of those, and they worked yeah. that way. And the author, John Mualam, is writing a, has been writing about that in, in Washington State. You know? um, but, but to leave open that possibility that people also had misgivings about the idea that should I be should I be getting vaccinated when others are not and and to really have those conversations and how far is it should I take a day off work can I what about child care the various things that go into grappling with a society that um, had to stratify everything to then dispense a life-saving medicine and they were only talking about the United States I mean I was here in South Korea watching that from afar and and for the first time in my life, really outside of like really outside of it and knowing that it didn't matter who I was and all the privileges that I have and they're immense, I was not going to get the vaccine. It was not going to happen until yeah. the Korean state was ready. So I was watching it with a different from a different vantage point. Well, I had a similar concern and also like a um, revelation process where because of that, the, it's not zero sum, right? And this is, I think, a ruse of that of that it is it is a trick that has been played on us that we think that all of these decisions are zero sum but especially when we're talking about public health my getting the vaccine actually protects a whole network of people around me right and so and my not getting the vaccine my getting the vaccine also isn't necessarily keeping it out of the hands of someone else this is i think a little bit to the conversation that has been that has come back as the us has started boosting has started administering boosters, right? Where this question of vaccine apartheid, which is so important and is something we have to think about as from, you know, from our position of privilege, I think we also have to, we also can't not get the vaccine because it could have gone to someone else, right? It's not going to someone else. It's, it's at CVS. They're not shipping it to wherever. And so it is, it is actually in the best interest of everyone that we all have as much immunity as possible. Um, but my my concern was for like the the kind of lower information people we were talking about before or people who simply the you know um what was the horrible phrase that we used the the um for like service workers and bus drivers i, I don't know why i just lost it but essential essential, essential workers. workers yeah <laughs> it's yeah. like as if some are yeah yeah they're essential until i mean well they're essential right but also are dying out, out at rates that outstrip what non-essential workers are dying at because they're in public all the time. And, you know, there was some good effort, I think, made to vaccinate them first, but was the, you know, like just how the those skids were greased, I think was a little bit of a, a question mark for me. I think federalism had a big, had a lot to do with this, especially before the Biden administration where the federal government was resistant to mandate anything. And so it was left up to municipalities, which meant that like, you know, this huge stratification between the city and the, the country or, you know, rural areas with whatever, whatever kind of sort of vulgar distinctions you want to make there. Um, and at the same time, population, like the, the percentage of people dying, being, you know, in, increasingly weighted towards vulnerable populations, populations of color, poor populations, you know, doubly employed people, people who are working hourly jobs that, that can't telework like this, 
it just exposed so much of how, of the of the inequities that have existed and have been building right that have been that aren't accidents that have been laid into the logic of um, contemporary American politics and and social life. Um, and so it was also it was a moment for me where I was like, well, what are my values too? like, and am I being self abnegating by not getting this vaccine? And am I being self abnegating by spinning myself up? <laughs> so I'm like, I've got three computers open, and I'm trying to find one. And I'm thinking about driving three hours away to get a vaccine, right. which I just didn't do, you know. Just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Professor Justin Mann today about, about black insecurity at the end of the world. And I want to turn to that now. And this is how I discovered your work, which is this essay that you have in the journal uh, Milus. So I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Is that how you say that? Uh, Melus, I think. Melus. Okay. Yeah. Is that a is that a reference to a, a literary a literary reference that I should be it's, aware of as no. a historian? Uh, multi-ethnic literature of the U.S. Okay, that's great, um, <laughs> and that makes and that makes a lot of sense. Um, I I discovered this essay and I kind of put everything else down and I read it and it was like it really opened my eyes to a lot of the potential for using the kind of sources and and theory that you use to make sense of what we're seeing. It draw it, it's one of those moments where it, maybe you've experienced this. You you specialize. You know, I specialize in history of disaster in the security state. Um, but it just drew together some things that I hadn't quite put together and it uses, um, fiction and it, and it uses narrative it helps deconstruct those in ways that, um, I wish I'd had this essay back in March of 2020, I guess is what I'm saying. So maybe, um, with that sort of brief introduction, you could tell us what it's about and it's, it's, um, why you wrote this. Sure. Yeah. So, well, first of all, thank you for, for saying that, that, that means a lot. Um, I've been working on this project, this book project about, um, the relationship between black speculative fictions and security policy since the Reagan administration, since 2015, it was a dissertation project. It's my current book project. Um, and this chapter in particular, um, from which the article is drawn um, is thinking about why the body becomes the site of security anxieties and securitization after 9-11. So this, the, we've got like a sort of traditional story about 9-11 that the, this is the rise of counterterrorism, or if not the rise, it's like certainly a, a very a big crescendo in counterterrorism and counterinsurgency movements, especially in the Middle East. Um, but throughout the world, North Africa, certainly as well. But we also, this is also the moment of the anthrax scare. And in the period between 2001 and the Ebola outbreaks of 2014 and 2015, there were also a number of um, respiratory, um, re like respiratory disease scares. Mostly these concerns were coming out of, um, out of Asia, out of China. And so I, I'm just wondering, the, the chapter is just, 
thinking about why the body comes to matter and how it matters um, in a moment that's like deeply anxious about what a global pandemic would mean um, for life in the U.S. So the the, the article um, is really about um, this novel Zone One by Colson Whitehead, MacArthur winner, Pulitzer winner, brilliant black um, contemporary author. And it's a zombie novel that um, takes place over the course of three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, in which we follow an unnamed protagonist or a, a protagonist who only has a pseudonym um, as he and his friends are doing the work of clearing out what they call skells or zombies from this area of lower Manhattan. So a zombie outbreak happens, most people die, the government moves to Buffalo, they send in the Marines to Manhattan because they think Manhattan will be the staging ground for reopening the world, which again, the this is written in 2010, the parallels to how Manhattan emerged as this like site of both incredible death and then like the sort of resuscitation of the world under de Blasio calls back to 9-11, right? You, so you can start to see the parallels. Anyway, back to the story. Um, Spitz is, uh, he is working as a sweeper or a cop, basically. They, they go in and they clear out these, these the whatever um, zombies that the, the Marines have missed. And it's really tracking him and his orientation to this project of um, what the novel calls reconstruction. Um, I think in an overt reference to the period of reconstruction um, following the Civil War in the American South, but also to the notion that like the state has to be, that the American state especially must exist and it must exist in the form we know it forever. What happens over the course of the novel is that Spitz learns that this project or discovers anyway, that this project has no space for him um, and that actually it, it can't hold, right? The world has changed so much that the state, um, that the, 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 the way that the people in Buffalo are imagining reconstruction, it just, it's just an impossibility. And so he opts to leave civilization in big scare quotes there for what the novel calls the wasteland, which is the area outside of Manhattan Island. And um, for to return to a place where he, thrived despite its um despite its dangers and like you know necessity for survival and i guess the thing that i think is most important about what the novel is asking and then demanding is that when we think of security and securitization or when we i should say when security policy makers and practitioners are are imagining securitization that timeline is working in the same way that the um, American government is in the novel, right? It's It's got a future arrow and it's it continues forever. It doesn't change, it doesn't adapt, it doesn't morph, it is what it is in perpetuity. And that is what that is how the state kind of defines survival. That's how it understands what survival looks like. But what Spitz and the reader learn in the course of like experiencing this thing, which has no place for him and for us as readers, is that survival can mean other things. And in fact, if we shifted our orientation of, or our definition of survival from this future orientation to a kind of present and also posteriorly oriented conception of survival, we have a completely different sense of what makes a good life, right? Like we learn that he found love in this place, that he 
learned about himself. He discovered his own capacities to be an excellent person, to, to live up to his nickname, which is Mark Spitz, right? Um, evoking that famous, you know, pre-Michael Phelps, you know, high school medal winner. Um, and so when think in the context of COVID, right, like, or, and even in some of what we've been talking about for the last couple of minutes, like, the military, that is a, that is the future-oriented project, right, is DOD and, and, and DHS, Department of Defense and Department of um, uh, Homeland Security, is about, like, what is the threat that's going to emerge? How can we stop it from emerging or be sure to be prepared to emer- to cut it off once it does? But if we were, if, if the state could see the way Spitz does, right, or the way the reader is asked to see, it would have to think, it would, it would, it would collapse because it actually can't do this, but it would, necessitate a completely different orientation to the conception of survival, the conception of human life, what makes a good life, um, what makes a livable life. Um, and, and yeah, I guess I'll stop there. <laughs> There's so many things about this that I, that I want to pick up and, um, I want to just give a quote from the piece, uh, you're talking about Spitz, and I'm just gonna gonna quote you here. Um, You talk about, the novel goes to great lengths to juxtapose Spitz against a world of intense militarism and danger, as you were just describing. Spitz's aptitude for survival, his knack for it, for in the novel's words, speaks directly to my concern, your concern here, regarding the interior forces of insecurity that have shaped and continue to shape black experiences broadly construed, and you go on to say, um, that his knack for, you know, his ability to survive suggests a relationship to, and <clears throat> thus a definition of survival mediated through the experience of black insecurity. Black insecurity marks the disposition of black subjects who are often made more insecure by the very forces that espouse safety. Uh, and that's the part, that's just a, such a powerful analysis there because you're you're deconstructing it in this piece both in terms of the discourse of security but also the the lived experience not by by pulling out this character from whitehead's novel um you know we get a we get to experience it at a, at a human level and i and i and i wanted to ask you about that because i think you're uh and we'll talk about the way you read rand reports in here too um you seem to be an avid consumer of fiction, but also of bureaucratic fiction or bureaucratic world making. Let's yeah. <laughs> call it that. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, oftentimes I feel like in, in September 11 feels like the right launching point for this because it's not the first time, certainly in American history, but it's the most recent time in which Americans were presented with the idea that security can be had if we follow a set of protocols created by a new mega government agency, which will tell us according to a color-coded threat chart what the risk level is here today. Yeah, for sure. With no conception that that takes place in a, in a time, in a context for whom, it's just safety for all, yeah. right? Um, and a cursory, if we return to those kind of documents of that time, which must have been what Whitehead has immersed himself in. This novel comes out on the 10th anniversary right around of, yeah. of 9-11. Um, just to make that point that not only did it not make the world safe for uh, white middle-class Americans, but it actually made the world more unsafe yeah, because what it did to the federal budget was, as we were talking about earlier, all these things that we thought were possible before, maybe in the 1990s, like community level 
um, emergency management, infrastructure spending, uh, healthcare spending, all that, you know, seems very quaint now to think about Hillary Clinton as a champion for healthcare spending. Right. Um, by 2001, that's off the table because we have to turn America into an anti-terrorist security state. Right. Yeah. And those, so I really see those, that foundation being laid two decades earlier and the, the interregnum of the Clinton administration and the, the, what the, you know, what foreign policy people call the, the unipolar moment for better or for ill as not, um, as an anxiety about like where, so what, what do we do with American power? Right. In the absence of this is like Fukuyama and, um, uh, yeah, just the, the even the, the even the conservative um, critics are like pretty anxious about what to do with all this power, and so I don't want to say they're pleased by nine eleven, but certainly the that anxiety dissipates, and there's a renewed focus towards um, you know building this counter terrorist counter insurgent state. But you know, even in the nineties, right? Like this is this is the moment I'm I'm drawing here on work by Eric Edwards and Melanie McAllister. And Cynthia Young, where um, you know the the military is getting increasingly brown and black, and that the the sort of we've got this sort of branching pathway that that begins certainly in the in the late '60s, but that by the '80s is in full gear, where there are two options for poor black and um, Latinx um, men, and then increasingly women to get out of the 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 financial and economic devastation of the inner city. One is the prison and the other is the military, right? And so at home in the domestic context, black and brown men, young men are the premier threat, like Hillary Clinton, super predators, right? In the same moment of the, of the healthcare um, push and of thinking about rethinking infrastructure and relationships to, um, to healthcare and all of that. In the same moment, right, the U.S. U.S. forces are being deployed all over the world to maintain peace. Latin America, Eastern Europe, Rwanda, Mogadishu, right? These there's a shifting timescale to all of this stuff, but and that force is increasingly black and brown. And so, while the U.S. is demanding security abroad with a black and a, a, a blackened and browned military, it's incarcerating black and brown men and women at home. Um, and so that's the kind of when I talk about the man, you know, the, the conception of in, insecurity of black insecurity specifically, I'm thinking specifically of that tension, that contradiction, that like the call to service, which has a very long history in black life. Right. And I have a lot of thoughts about it. But for for many black men, especially military service was a way to um, a way to demand citizenship, the full measure of humanity, right, the full participation in state processes like voting. So here's the pathway, right? But um, that, how do you square the cognitive, cogn cognitive dissonance of service with the devastation of mass incarceration to black and brown communities and with the threat of incarceration post-service, right? So, which is maybe a, a whole different thread to pull on, but that these two things are deeply entwined. And finally, I'll say that I, I do see, you know, I, I kind of started here long ago, but that the welfare state has become so such a stigmatized way of thinking about government service 
but we need to acknowledge that the the coloniality is the thing that necessitates the welfare state, right? That capital and democ capitalism and democracy produce a world, make a world that in which some people have more than others. And so, if that's the case, it should be ethically impingent upon the power in power in that system to support those who don't have privilege. And what we saw with Reagan and with Bush and with Clinton and with Bush and with Obama, to be quite honest, was a continuous um, uh, just torpedoing of the welfare state, right? Obvi like very obviously under Reagan and, and the Republicans, but also to a certain extent under Clinton that attaching all kinds of rights to a non-incarcerated status, right? Building up, you know, if we think about military spending, right, spending at the level of the corporation for huge procurement contracts while there are enlisted people who are on food stamps or who, you know, need Head Start or need other government services. So just the way that the, the inequities of the world, you know, really mapping how the security state has been a necessary um, pathway to what I see as an anti-Black defunding of necessary services is really where the, the conception of Black insecurity is living. So it's um, your move here in the essay is to is to explore that again through the novelization the way that Whitehead handles it, but then also you bring us into the world of of Rand documents. And again, I'm just going to pull from from the essay. You talk about Rand's 2015 white paper mitigating the impact of Ebola and potential hot zones, um, and this is a white paper produced by Rand. Um, and other similar institutions you write describing the 2014-15 West African Ebola outbreak. And you really dive into it. And I'm, again, I'm just going to quote here, the document is structured by speculative elements, which as the title suggests, aims to help practitioners in Africa and elsewhere, quote unquote, prepare for the prevention of disease ingress. It mobilizes a number of elements, including charts, tables, and a tabletop exercise that implicitly describe race-neutral biosecurity measures, but rely on a racialized and neocolonial worldview for their operation. Um, I, I put your work here with the work of sociologist Lee Clark, who's written extensively about sort of Cold War fantasy documents. Um, and but he doesn't, a lot of Lee Clark's work doesn't, doesn't use this, um, your sort of deeper understanding the way that race is being constructed here as well. But I think you have similar, uh, uh, you're similarly deft in operating in the world of fiction and then bringing it right into the world of security bureaucracy and showing us that we really shouldn't um, draw too hard of a line between those two types of documents. So I guess, how'd you find this document and and what's it doing for you in, in conjunction with the novel? So I found the document as part of a long way to figuring out how to write about the security state when most of the things that I would want to be writing about would we're behind a veil of classification. So in a, in a mostly presentist project, um, I just knew I wouldn't have access to state, state sources um, and thought with some working with some people um, that white papers were a really good way of thinking about how people are thinking about what does the discourse of security look like in a moment, right? Because that they are discursive documents. Um, this one, I think I found through policy file through just like a general search on Ebola. Um, as a matter of method, I was just like, what is, what are people saying about Ebola? Why, why Ebola is a useful reference for me, especially in COVID because of how different it is, right? It's bloodborne, it's hemorrhagic. It's like, it's so um, violent and spectacular in ways that COVID 
kind of isn't, right? COVID is much more of a languorous, um, but private, like one's private, one's public, one's sort of respiratory, the other's, anyway. Um, I found this document before COVID, but um, it, the the way that the document itself maps how so you can't see it i don't think but there's this these there are a whole bunch of these infographics in the document there are a number of charts and it's a proof of concept paper so it's like um these the authors uh are trying to offer tools for foreign service workers to figure out how to prevent as i say and as they say the ingress of Ebola into a nation state. Um, and what strikes me about how the the logic that they use is that is is basically if the state is strong, Ebola will not get there. And if a state is weak or failing, Ebola is probably coming. Which like is so tautological on the one hand, but also ignores so many processes that have made strong and weak states, right? Strong and weak, th this is not a natural state of government or of governmentality. These are the, the, the sense of strength or weakness are actually the effects of long historical processes. So when we're talking about Ebola in West Africa, we might think about, I don't know, any number of things, <laughs> including colonization, right? The slave trade, um, the ongoing forms of um, predatory capitalism that exist in those places that rely on extractivists, meaning like um, really pulling resources out of the land, deploying um, local um, indigenous workers at great expense to their own health in order to get as much resources out of the earth as possible and then leaving, right? So creating no real long-term infrastructure, um, and then classifying certain local practices, this we saw this too with the COVID, this is where they sort of mesh as primitive or simplistic or pre-civilized or, so the concern in, in the case of Ebola um, or in any kind of zoonotic disease, which is a disease that jumps from one species to another, from animal species to human specifically, um, is around meat and eating practices. So is meat contaminated, is, right? Um, but why aren't there supermarkets in, do we think that the people of West Africa of, of Sierra Leone don't want a supermarket? Of course they want a supermarket, right? And they want clean water and they want like the notion that any of this just exists naturally as the authors of this rand paper suggest implicitly is, 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 is wrong. It's just the world has been made by people who make it right. And then the, the tabletop exercise is really the, the place where it all kind of falls into place and also falls apart for me because I'm forgetting specifically, but I think they use the case they use is like someone is trying to cross the border from Somalia into Ethiopia or they're East African countries, right? So instead of the US, South America, Europe, we're staying on the continent, right? And we're staying like, so no, no person of African descent from Africa leaves the continent of Africa, right? It's, 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 it's so deeply racialized that they can't acknowledge that what they're saying is that Ebola is a black disease and that in constructing it as a black disease, we're naming it as all kinds of other things. We're suggesting certain people are safe from it, certain people aren't. And we're also suggesting that to get Ebola could potentially have some kind of racialization attached to it that would result in stigmatization, removal from society, all of those things. Um, 
So it, it was just such a striking document because of how bald-faced it was about its own <laughs> like limitations. And also it so nicely illustrated this, this really colonial and racist racializing logic that um, is really important to how we understand disease. Well, maybe let's bring it back to COVID then. And this is kind of where we started in your description of going through the, the vaccination line, the mass vaccination center to a certain extent. You know, how do you see these same kind of discursive practices around securitization playing out with COVID? How has security from COVID actually led to or emphasized black insecurity? I mean, that's sort of one question, but also this even, to me, even more interesting set of, set of you know, analyses that you make in the piece that that it's in that black insecurity, we should be spending a lot more time looking for that world, because that's the world that African Americans and other people of color in America live with, and that yeah. it's in that that we actually might realize that's what we all live with, but we just don't think it applies to us. Yeah, so this is, yeah, I mean, so the first, to answer the first part of your or the first question, the the place that I think it's just it, the COVID has been racialized in X number of ways, right? The the sort of epithetical like derivation of where COVID emerged from. I won't repeat those those terms, but the the way that the um, the Trump administration and others in its earliest moments really saw it as um, endemic to and also apart, endemic to China and apart from the US, again, as though no one has ever gotten an airplane before. And then the way that that carried with it a sense, this has a long history of, you know, Euro, the, the concept of yellow peril is, is, um, is really uh, underlaying a lot of immigration policy throughout the 18th and 19th, the 1800s and 1900s. Um, I would point people to Nayan Shah's work or Neil Ahuja's work or my colleague Michelle Huang's work. Um, but the so the, the sense that this is an Asian disease or really specifically a Chinese disease in the earliest moments, I think, gives people a sense of, of protection. Like, we don't have to worry about this. It's not here. When it moved to Italy, I think that that fiction sort of fell apart. But the it's then jumped to the U.S. again and the way that it afflicted vulnerable populations and in a way that was so catastrophically um, private, like so not, uh, with, with, with a few exceptions, right, the sort of mass grave in New York City being one of them. I think it, it allowed for this, the myth, the myth and mystification of what the disease was to linger long after it really should have. Um, and of course, like, you know, the disproportionate number of dead black and brown people means that those are, those are fathers, mothers, sisters, right? That's like, a, there, there's a generational devastation that I think we won't actually fully understand for a long time. The second part of your question, I think, is where the ethical call kind of lives for me. I, I think about so many black feminist theorists that I admire and whose work I, I draw on who are trying to say, and this is Kimberly Crenshaw, Pat Williams, who I've mentioned, I mean, back to like Anna Julia Cooper and others from the early, late 19th and early 20th century, right? That like, if the state would just do 
would see to this problem of black insecurity, right? If it would say, you know what our goal is, our goal is to make sure that that poor black people have all that they need, then everyone else would by necessity have all that they needed, right? right? It, it, it would, it, we, and the state can't do that because it's not built that way, right? It's built to do other things. It's built to destroy black life in some cases. It's built to repurpose black life into the machinery of war or into to warehouse it or whatever, but it's not, um, it's not necessarily built to administer to that. But I think what is at least um, a glimmer of possibility for me is that we don't necessarily need the state to do the thing that we want ourselves to do, right? Which is build community, create alternative pathways of seeing and being in the world. And so, you know, I think this there is an opportunity if we understand the condition of life that is so... Um, that is insecure and try to direct our ourselves to reduce that insecurity, right? To build infrastructures of care, networks of support, of course, but also like actually, right? Like actually build the infrastructure, <laughs> actually like think about what it takes to get more black women doctors. So we um, right. reduce those health disparities in maternal mortality and infant mortality, or, you know, really agitate when we think about abolition, right? Prison abolition broadly, like what is it, what does that actually look like? And how will, what will we do with all the people who have been incarcerated? They are going to need services. That's like a different world making ask. That's asking us to think differently about how we move about the world. And I think there is possibility there to, to actually refashion the world that we live in. So just to kind of take this back to the preparedness of Americans for this disaster through what kind of fictions they've consumed. I wonder, you know, I know you've thought about that, um, you know, contagion, outbreak, other, you know, sort of big box office, Hollywood sort of um, pandemic epics that are out there, which I, um, and I was talking about this a couple of days ago with a friend, um, I couldn't, I couldn't watch those. I didn't watch those and um, early in the pandemic. I mean, I, the, the stuff I study, I often am like, I don't need, I don't need to also introduce that violence into my, into my brain, the historical records enough. But I think I was, I think I was way off base there, frankly, because some of the American cultural response to COVID, particularly in the first couple of months, I see now as in some ways, I think preconditioned, um, by some of these big box office preparations uh, and particularly around the sort of expectation, and this goes beyond the pandemic, but the sort of American fascination, um, pathological fascination with looting and the racialization of the looting, which yeah. also crept in early with the pandemic, but there's other layers to it as well. And I, I guess I want to sort of ask you to comment on that, but then sort of pose it as a problem. Yeah. Like, how do we then make the cultural diet of Americans much more nutritious so that when a disaster occurs, they've read zone one and also seen contagion? Yeah. I mean, the, the question of the coincidence of the like BLM uprisings and looting, I think is really an important one. I don't want to lose it, uh, but I want to answer the question about the, the fiction diet first. Um, I, I, so the chapter in its initial incarnation was a comparison between Max Brooks's World War Z, which you may know, and Zone One, both zombie novels. Brooks's novel is written explicitly as a government report. It's, it is an oral history 
a collection of oral histories that is delivered to a UN intergovernmental panel on what to do after the successful defeat of this zombie outbreak, right? So there it is, right? The world is coming back. We've returned to, we're returning to normalcy, whatever that means. And this novel, the solution that Brooks proposes is first, one of the successful measures is the enclosure of, of the state of Israel and the repatriation of all Israeli and Palestinian people into the state of Israel behind a wall. So isolation. The second measure is apartheid. So this South, they find an emissary from the apartheid government, pull him out of his whatever retirement, and they implement a plan by which they zone cordon off certain sections of the population to allow the zombies to eat them so they can rebuild. Mm -hmm. And then the third is the reconquest of the United States from California to the United States. So they literally enact a reversed manifest destiny where the U.S. marches in a straight line formation across the Great Plains, mowing down these these like insurgents, right? These zombies who have occupied the American land. This man, Max Brooks, is celebrated by the Department of Defense. He is given contracts with the CDC, the DOD, certain, I think FEMA, right? He's held up as an exemplar of someone who can imagine what a threat looks like and imagine its responses. Okay, well, each of those, <laughs> each of those measures is not he didn't imagine them right he pulled plucked them out of history yep. and the and out of their racialized context and has resituated this so that it is human against zombie right but like the zombie is not a non-racialized symbol it is a racialized subject it comes out of haitian folklore even if we want to say it's has nothing that the contemporary zombie has nothing to do with the zombies of haitian folklore which sure i don't think it does we can't deracinate the zombie and so his solution is to just kill black people, right? And, or keep them out, per, lay, let them be, leave, you know, reenact one of the most violent, ra violently racist governmental regimes in the history of the world. And I would prefer that people not read that book. <laughs> I have read it yeah. for you. I have just told you what it's about. You do not need to read it. Um, I would much rather you read Zone One or even watch a movie like which I think toes the line in a little bit of an in-between place, I am legend, right? Which is so clearly obsessed with race, right? We're talking about Will Smith as this brilliant virologist working for the military who is fighting a, a mutated human species called quote unquote dark seekers who have turned all white and are incredibly photophobic, right? Like it's obsessed with race. And the solution there is that he's synthesized a vaccine in his own blood and he gives it to his brown friend and saves the day by dying. And they go to a safe house and they synthesize this vaccine by transmitting his blood to everyone, right? By making everyone black. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I will. Or zone one, right? Which is like, maybe we don't need the state. Maybe the state, um, maybe we need to linger in the wasteland, to like, to like dwell in this space of insecurity, to understand what it does to us, how it makes us more agile, more quick thinking, more whatever. And not as a matter of like, again, self-abnegation or of like of a trauma seeking, but rather to like actually understand the history of the present, right? To understand how we got to this moment so we can see like, oh, there are no hospital beds 
So of course people are dying. Well, like we need more hospitals. We need more hospital beds. We need more respirators. And that's a bigger ask, I think. Um, you know, my my fear is that because this is a racialized project, like the, the what I'm calling for is a racialized project. It needs people to acknowledge that race exists, that race is a system of power. You know, it also is a, it also is a project that needs consensus. And so many people are unwilling to admit that they, by virtue of their proximity to blackness, fall in between the cracks, right? So like poor white people living in rural Mississippi who do not have hospital beds, their whiteness is not protecting them, right? Even though it's supposed to, it's not. Um, and, you know, the opposite is true, of course, for the president who gets an emergency drug cocktail that is experimental and doesn't die from what should have been a fatal course of COVID. But that's not about whiteness there. That's about, well, it's of course about whiteness always, but it's also about power and proximity to, um, to this narrative that he must survive, right? Like, who knows what the world would look like if he didn't, but the efforts put into keeping him alive were Herculean. Um, yeah, so I would say, like, I don't watch Contagion. It's not good. It, it does bad things. Um, yeah, and and you're uh, agree with you about World War Z. I mean, even, you know, that that film, I mean, the fact that it sort of starts in Philadelphia, that whole, the whole first 30 minutes to me, uh, and, and you know, they're, they're in a housing project in Newark, and it's like, this is hitting all the notes. North I mean, Korea. this is, this is, it's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is not a dog whistle. This is a symphony. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's so evident and it's, and I guess. And in the movie, know, I mean, it's even worse because in the movie, right, the thing that leads to the collapse of Israel, Israel is like looking really good. And yeah, it is yeah. a, a Palestinian yeah. and Israeli two children are singing together on the microphones and the zombies come and like yeah. climb over the wall. It's yeah. it's so deeply anxious about race and also like phobic about integration and like what could happen if people saw past or saw through, not past, um, worked through racial di or, you know, ethnic difference. And uh, yeah, the, the movie is not it. <laughs> I wonder, you know, we're we're almost out of time. I'm being a little greedy with your time today, but I really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot. Um, I wonder, you know, in, in terms of of pr production, cultural production in this time, what you're seeing and how we can facilitate it. Because, you know, I'm sort of doing this day by day, which is, you know, capturing discussions with experts like yourself in the moment to try to build a living record of what we're going through and what cult, what we're pulling on to try to understand this time. It's like a sense-making document, I guess, you will, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But this is not a venue where I can facilitate the creation of new art and, and art that might imagine possibilities or explore possibilities in this moment. But as we've been describing, I mean, when you're studying the history of biosecurity and the fictionalization of biosecurity, maybe those divisions into separate camps is is not such a, an important thing to do maybe we should there should be a lot more fluidity in what in the ways we talk about just as you did uh, you're consuming a novel and you're consuming a rand report and you're you're working with those in a really sort of uh nuanced and fluid way and i guess I'm, what i'm confessing is i sort of think i've missed an opportunity here with covid calls to be a little bit more generative about world making 
So I've learned something here today. But I also wonder when you think about it, like how can you support or how do you support production? An academic, yes, we've got to make the academic stuff because that's the world we're in. But things that might reach wider audiences or have greater uptake because culture is not a zero sum game. Yeah, Hollywood can make these big films. But um, I mean, from the history of Afropunk and uh, to all the way through, you know, the the black speculative fiction you've been talking about. This is a space where things can get made and those things can be really powerful. Well, I mean, we talked a little bit before we got on stream about this New York Times piece about Zone One and what it means to read Zone One in the pandemic, right? And so I think these these texts do exist, and people are, I, I people are finding their way to them. Maybe not in exactly the way that I would hope they do, but I think that people make their way. Um, we are, you know, culture is about making sense of the world too. So I don't. I would first of all, I would say this is a cultural document as well, um, and it is about metabolizing what is happening in the world around us. So here's one stop. Um, I also think, you know, and maybe I can say a little bit just about the uprisings in as part of this conversation, because I think it's easy to see them as two different like phenomena, but actually I think the way that the uprisings occurred in the midst of global pandemic in an early moment in the pandemic, so pre-vaccine, they taught us a lot about care because to my knowledge, not a single transmission of the coronavirus occurred at a Black Lives Matter rally in twenty, the summer of 2020. Contrast with what happened in South Dakota in the, Stur- the Sturgis rally, right, where there were hundreds of thousands, I think 100,000 cases of transmissions of COVID. That tells me something about how Black people and Black allies are in relationship to each other. And those are cultural events, right? Those are, they're not simply just articulations of politics, but they're, there's art that happens there. There are, there's reporting that happens from them. There, the, the marches themselves are public performances that are informative about how people are living and, and breathing or not in that moment. And so much of the protest, of course, it was about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, but it was also about the catastrophic loss of life in black and brown communities and the those inequities that were that were producing more black death and so i think when when i think about world making right that is one way of thinking about it that those protests um which of course get rebranded as all kinds of things are a, a way of articulating a relationship to the world they're telling us something about how people want to be in the world in the same way that a policy paper is a world-making document, right? It's not It's not announcing a world that is, it's suggesting a world that should be. And of course, like there's disproportionate power in, in the comparison between those two things and policy papers that make their way into policy, that make their way into practice, right? That is, that becomes a world. That's, we see world-making in action, but we often think about policy as practice. And we often think about, the policy paper as descriptive as opposed to speculative. And I think that there's a lot of potential if we shift our attention from the former to the latter by thinking about these these governmental processes as speculative processes that announce a threat. Hey, it's Afghanistan. Oh, it's not Afghanistan anymore. Now it's North Africa. Oh, now it's Yemen. Oh, we got to pay attention to the border, right? Here come the, right? That like we can see even in that, 
framing that it's not it's it is nowhere and everywhere at once right and it's it's sort of conveniently wherever those in power needed to be or those who want to be in power needed to be often um and so i yeah i just think that if we can if we can understand the relationship between the speculative and the governmental in more nuanced ways we get a, a more full picture of how of what options there are for us to navigate that world and and actually work back like you know push back against what we don't want to see what we don't want to manifest and into imagine ourselves into a different future and that's where i think I'll, this will be the last thing i say you know black speculative fiction authors have been doing this and octavia butler maybe the prime example but sam delaney and what, glad what, you mentioned what, sam like, delaney yeah. yeah like these they they have such an acute sense of especially security right because it is so close it, it it's so proximate to their lived experience that they can articulate and reimagine what security looks like um often by critiquing it or by undermining it by querying it in some cases by showing how stupid you know what i love about butler is she so clearly says like i think missile defense is dumb it's stupid anyone who imagined this is an idiot and we're gonna we're all gonna die right like well there's your policy paper right <laughs> um, it's pretty clear and that you know in a moment when the state when the science national science um foundation is looking to science fiction writers to say how do we build for a new nuclear war uh, a new a nuclear future and contest with 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 the Soviet Union in the in the late seventies and early nineteen eighties, right? Butler is right there, and they do not want to hear from her because they don't want to hear what she has to say, which is this: will we will all die? We will all, we will all be dead. Um, so, yeah, I think just diversifying what is in on the reading menu is is is, is it's not a casual call, right? It's not because it's it's politically correct or polite. It's because people from different positional backgrounds have different relationships to reality. And, and the only way we can understand what those relationships are is to sort of engage with those, what they say in their writing. I can't help but think at this moment when uh, critical race theory has been somehow picked up and, and weaponized by the right, and Toni Morrison is now somehow getting kicked off of reading lists in high schools, that that shows exactly what you're describing, but the inverse of it, that people who are committed to white nationalism and want to undermine the project that you've been just describing here, the potential um, here, um, they see that very clearly and they go to war in the cultural space often first and and, and they often succeed there. I, and I think this is that's exactly right. And you know, some of the most canny cultural critics of the 20th century are conservative critics who understand that making people feel afraid is a great way to get votes. And this, of course, is coupled with like political projects to disenfranchise voters or to just kill them or incarcerate them. But of course, like Tony Moore, you know, what is dangerous about Tony Morrison is the truth in the same way that what is dangerous about, you know, the debates about critical race theory, setting aside that I don't think any of these people have ever read actual critical race theory and just think that like talking about blackness is critical race theory. Um, critical race theory is a critique of the law, right? It is a critique of how the law imagines race. And so to say that it's wrong, so to say that it's offensive without 
ever engaging on any of their grounds what they mean when they say, you know, when we're thinking about like Derek Bell's interest convergence theory and how it relates to the construction of American education post-Brown, like I'm inclined to agree with Bell. I'll say that, you know, outright, but like there's room for debate, I think, but not rejection because he's describing it. Like it's so historicist, right? It's so clearly about marking a set, a pattern of emergencies and developments in the same way that like, what, what grounds do we have to reject Kimberly Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality when what she's saying is the law cannot capture race and racialized and gendered people at the same time. It doesn't think about them. It only can think about racial discrimination right. or gender discrimination. Like it's, so it's such a false, it's such a, it's talk about dog whistle, right? It's just about making white people afraid that what I would argue they probably know to be true would be is being confirmed in curricula. Like that's just, it's just mm -hmm. unfortunate because it's a chance for more freedom, for more liberation, for more justice, for more equity. And instead we get a Republican governor in Virginia because people are afraid, you know, or right. people not reading Toni Morrison, which, <laughs> okay. Yeah, She's, absolutely. Well, by the way, Toni's doing fine, like without you, so don't read her, but. Yeah, right. Um. I'd better release you to your Thanksgiving preparations. Uh, so I want I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. I've been talking to Justin Mann today, who's working on a new book, "Breaking the World: Black Insecurity After the New World Order." And we've been talking about an essay that he uh, has published called "Black Insecurity at the End of the World." And I'll make sure that um, I'll tweet out the link to that. It's open access, and um, you can find that article uh, and read it and um and read colson whitehead's novel and um just want to remind everybody you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m eastern time we'll be taking a few days off for thanksgiving i hope everybody has a, a healthy time and a time with family and friends and justin man thank you so much for your uh gift of time and and, and genius today i really appreciate well, it thank you for having me this has been a pleasure stay healthy everybody we'll see you next time on COVID calls